Hey, Wiki listeners, it's Rachel. And Victor, did you know I host the fantastic NYC Talent Show every Monday night at the Parkside Lounge in New York City? It's an off-off Broadway showcase where you can see New York's underground performance art up close. We've got weekly special guests like Colin Quinn, Janine Garofalo, Tone Bell, and lots more. Use the code WIKILISTEN for a special discount on tickets when you go to nyctalentshow.com. That's nyctalentshow.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Wikipedia page for Qbert, part two of two. Welcome to Wikilisten, the podcast where we read Wikipedia pages and provide commentary. I'm Rachel Teichman, LMSW. And I'm Victor Vernado, KSN, reminding everybody out there to subscribe, just like Coily. Coily, if you've been listening to the first half of this, people think he's a main antagonist in Qbert. You'd know that if you did listen to yesterday's episode. I hope you did. I hope you right. too. And I'd like to thank Warren Davis for being here for part two. Oh, yeah. Fun fact. Warren Davis is still here. <laughs> my, my pleasure being here. Thanks for having me over last night, too. I really appreciate the, uh, the sofa to sleep on. It was very comfortable. You were very kind. I do want to know where those toenails came from, though. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Shall we dive in? I believe you should take it away, Rachel. Let's do it. Development. Concept. Programmer Warren Davis wrote that he was inspired by a pattern of hexagons implemented by fellow Gottlieb developer and Mad Planets designer Khan Yabumoto. Um, this is mostly true. I don't believe Khan created it. I think Jeff created it for him. I saw that on, on the screen. Khan was using it. Uh, he was actually using it just as eye candy. In other words, uh-huh. uh, it was a background. We had a hardware that let you switch the background and foreground. And uh, so basically he was using it to switch background and foreground and he was using that as his background, but he wasn't doing anything functional with it. It was literally just something that filled the screen and looked pretty. In a different telling, the initial concept began when Jeff Lee drew a pyramid of cubes inspired by MC Escher. Lee believed a game could be derived from the artwork and created an orange, armless main character. The character jumped along the cubes and shot projectiles called mucus bombs from a tubular nose at enemies. 
Enemies included a blue creature, later changed purple and named Wrong Way, and an orange creature, later changed green and named Sam. Lee had drawn similar characters since childhood, inspired by characters from comics, cartoons, Mad Magazine, and by artist Ed Big Daddy Roth. Hubert's design later included a speech balloon with a string of nonsensical characters, which Lee originally presented as a joke. All right, let's get let's take a deep dive into this paragraph. Okay, so the initial concept did not begin when Jeff drew a pyramid of cubes because the, he created a background pattern for Khan which filled the screen. The pyramid was something that I imagined to help me with my uh, exercise of, of programming balls bouncing down. I also remember asking Jeff to give me uh, artwork of a ball falling down because you know that is something I I didn't feel I could create. I needed an artist to do a nice rounded ball, and I asked him to give me a deformed ball for when it lands so it squishes a little. And then I went ahead and programmed a ball bouncing down the pyramid, but. Um, the character of Cubert didn't even enter the picture until I had programmed the ball bouncing down the pyramid. And then I went to Jeff and said, "Look, people think this is cool. I'm going to try and put a player character. Can do you have have you, you know, do you have any characters lying around?" And he said, "Yeah, I do." And he put them all up on the screen. So the Cubert character was definitely something he had created prior to my programming exercise we um, are going to break this cubert wikipedia page wide open <laughs> anyway so uh <laughs> let's see lee believed a game could be derived from the artwork and created an orange armless again they're just getting the order backwards jeff had created the character uh before the pyramid of cubes um there's an interesting diagram on this page you will notice it is a hand-drawn sketch by Jeff Lee. And I've talked to Jeff about this. This was in his notebook. And when I asked Jeff, because Jeff was telling people that he came up with the original concept. And I said, Jeff, I, I created the pyramid. And he's, he said, I thought Khan created the pyramid. I was like, no, I created the pyramid and put the balls bouncing around it. You must have come up with this once the balls were falling down. And that's where, you know, you had this concept of Kubert shooting out of his nose, which again, I do remember. Jeff designed the character to shoot out of his nose. Yes. I never, never uh, took that seriously as an option because it was way too complicated for the physics that I could program. I mean, I'm programming a pseudo 3D game in a completely 2D environment, and it's my first game. So I'm like, I don't want to take on too much that's, you know, complicated. So, you know, anyway, this whole paragraph is just. <laughs> wrong in so many ways. Now, I, I I can't speak to the rest of this paragraph because uh, I think, you know, some of it probably is true. Implementation. Warren Davis, who is hired to work on the game Protector, noticed Lee's ideas and asked if he could use them to practice programming randomness and gravity as game mechanics. You want me to comment? I think you have to. That The, the, the only part of that that is false is noticed Lee's ideas and asked. That is literally, utterly false. Um, I was hired not to work on, I wasn't hired to work on Protector, but I was hired to make video games and the first thing they did was assign me to Protector. So I'll give them that. It's a slight, very, very slight twisting of reality, but not much. 
Mm -hmm. Um, But again, I mean, once my responsibilities to protect were finished, basically management said, "Okay, Warren, make us a game, make a game. That was literally the only task I was given. When I saw the cubes on Khan's screen, the first step for me was I think I have a little bit more to learn. I want to learn. I want to program something with gravity and randomness. So that that was something I did completely on my own, had nothing to do with Jeff. Jeff was not involved. I didn't ask anybody if I could do it. I just did it. Thus, he added balls that bounce from the pyramids top to bottom. Because Davis was still learning how to program game mechanics, he wanted to keep the design simple. He also believed games with complex control schemes were frustrating and wanted something that could be played with one hand. To accomplish this... I I also have told the story where I wanted a game where I could hold a drink in one hand. Oh, that sounds even better. That is also true. Agree. To accomplish this, Davis removed the shooting and changed the objective of saving the protagonist from danger. Well, okay, I never removed the shooting because there never was shooting. It just was never there, and I literally never considered it. I didn't change the objective because, again, there was no objective. The first thing that happened when I put in the player character was, yes, he needs to avoid the balls from hitting him. And then you may continue because I believe the rest of the paragraph is actually correct. As Davis worked on the game one night, Gottlieb's vice president of engineering, Ron Waxman, noticed him and suggested to change the color of the cube after the game's character has landed on them. Davis implemented a unique control scheme. A four-weight joystick was rotated 45 degrees to match the directions of Kubert's jumping. Staff members at Gottlieb urged for a more conventional orientation. (laughs) But Davis stuck to his decision. Davis remembered to have started programming in April 1982, but the project was only put on the schedule as an actual product several months later. A couple of things about the the joystick. Uh, I never thought there was anything remotely controversial or original about rotating the joystick 45 degrees. It was, to me, utterly obvious. If you look at the play field, you don't move up, down, left, and right. You move up to the left, up to the right, down to the left, down to the right. I don't know why that was hard for so many people to wrap their brains around. It was, to me, it was a no-brainer. But uh, but it is not, it, it is correct to say that it was controversial. A lot of people did have problems with it. To this day, I do not understand why. Um, I think people just don't like change, you know? Warren Davis wild in in the 80s. <clears throat> and as far as the putting on the schedule, it should say weeks believe it was put on the schedule several weeks later, not in months. Audio. A MOS technology 6502 chip that operates at 894 kilohertz generates the sound effects and a speech synthesizer by Votrax generates Qbert's incoherent expressions. The audio system uses 128 bytes of random access memory and 4 kilobytes of erasable programmable read-only memory to store the sound data and code to implement it. Like other Gottlieb games, the sound system was thoroughly tested to ensure it would handle daily usage. In retrospect, audio engineer David Thiel commented that such testing minimized time available for creative designing. Thiel was tasked with using the synthesizer to produce English phrases for the game. However, he was unable to create coherent phrases and eventually chose to string together random phonemes instead. 
Thiel also believed the incoherent speech was a good fit for the in Kubert's speech balloon. Following a suggestion from technician Rick Tai, a pinball machine component known as a knocker was included to make a sound when the character falls off the pyramid. This knocker consists of a solenoid with a plunger that strikes the mounting bracket, which is in turn firmly fastened to the cabinet. Foam padding was added to the area of contact on the bracket. The developers decided the softer sound better matched a fall rather than a loud knocking sound. The cost of installing foam, however, was too expensive and the padding was omitted. Wait a uh, second. So, so in the actual arcade cabinet, it would make a physical sound. Yes. Y- yeah. Yeah. There was a pinball knocker. What? And when Kubert fell off, or yeah, I think Coily as well, anytime somebody fell off the pyramid, you would hear a loud knock at the bottom of the cabinet. That's like wild. they were falling into the video game. Yeah, the idea was it, we wanted it to sound like a thud, like a body hitting the bottom of the cabinet, mm-hmm. um, which with the foam, it kind of did. Without the foam, it just sounded like somebody knocking at the door. But um, still, a lot of people love that feature. I I was always, it was bittersweet because I knew how much better it could have sounded with, with the foam. But um, <laughs> but that was also true. The, the, the only thing in this paragraph uh, that is not exactly true it says that Dave was unable to create coherent phrases from the speech synthesizer. That That's actually untrue. That same chip was used to create English speech for, for pinball machines. That's, that's why that chip was there. It had been used for many pinball games and it would say lots of stuff in English. It just sounded like crap and Dave thought it sounded like crap. And so he, he hated the sound of it, but that was the technology available at the time. But the fact that he he came up with the idea to use random phonemes for Kubert's speech is absolutely true. That's awesome. Yeah. Here's also a quote from him, from from David uh, Thiel, quote. We wanted the game to say you've gotten 10,000 bonus points. And the closest I came to it after an entire day would be bogus points. Being very frustrated with this, I said, well, screw it. What if I just stick random numbers in the chip instead of all this highly authored stuff? What happens? David Thill on the creation of Kubert's Incoherent Swearing. Wiki listeners, pick up your joysticks because it's time to listen to this quick message to help support us. Thank you for listening to that message, Wiki listeners. We're back, finally, to find out what happens at the end of this Qbert article. So put that joystick down and listen up. Title. The Gottlieb staff had difficulty naming the game. Aside from the project name Cubes, it was untitled for most of the development process. The staff agreed the game should be named after the main character, but disagreed on the name. Lee's title for the initial concept, Snots and Boogers, was rejected, (laughs) as was a list of suggestions compiled from company employees. According to Davis, Vice President of Marketing Howie Rubin championed the speech balloon. That's my editorial edition. Uh, as the title. Although staff members argued it was silly and would be impossible to pronounce, a few early test models were produced with as the title on the unit's artwork. During a meeting, Hubert was suggested, and a staff member thought of combining cubes and Hubert into Cubert. 
with a CU. Art director Richard Tracy changed the name to Q-Bert, and the hyphen was later changed to an asterisk. In retrospect, Davis expressed regret for the asterisk because it prevented the name from becoming a common crossword term, and it is a wildcard character for search engines. Is this true? <laughs> uh, eh, partially. I, I, did, I did lament the asterisk for searches. When the asterisk became uh, like the, the wild card, that, that did become a problem because you couldn't really search for Qbert by its original name. So, But as far as uh, crossword puzzles, I don't remember ever, I don't remember ever thinking that the asterisk prevented it from being a crossword term. But you don't think that it might be something you said off the cuff? I mean, you seem rather spirited. It is very possible. It is very possible <laughs> one day I said that. I can imagine myself like... Uh, I don't know, in, a, in an odd situation where I suddenly exclaim something in the moment that is never meant to be recorded and, and put down for posterity, but then somebody would. You know, can you imagine yourself in a situation where you just say something in the spur of the moment and then how would you feel if somebody took that and put it down in some sort of an encyclopedia as a quote that you once said. It would, I, you know what I mean? I think I'd have to say, I, my, my only answer could be that I have to feel good about it. But the, yeah, so uh, the, the only addendum I was going to say is I, mm -hmm. I have seen Qbert be the answer to crossword cue, uh, clues. I've seen, you know. I, I've known it to be uh, in a crossword myself. Mm -hmm. Testing. As development neared the production stage, Qbert underwent location tests in local arcades under its preliminary title, <laughs> before being widely distributed, according to Jeff Lee, his oldest written record attesting to the game being playable as <laughs> in a public location, a Brunswick bowling alley, dates back to September 11, 1982. Gottlieb also conducted focus groups in which the designers observed players through a one-way mirror. Did you do this? Yeah. yeah. I, have a, I have a question about that. Sure. Um, did you do that because you always wanted to use a one-way mirror? <laughs> no, see, I, uh, I, I've always been a one-way mirror aficionado. No, I'm don't No, it's a, First of all, I had nothing to do with this. I didn't arrange any of the focus groups. This was a standard thing that was done in the industry. It was done in many industries. Uh, there were companies that you could hire to, you know, coordinate and make these focus groups. I also did uh, focus groups, I remember, with Disney. Years later, when I was working with Disney making video games, we did focus groups on, on, home, on Disney home games. So it was a common practice. You you know, you'd go to a mall, you'd, you'd give people, uh, you know, you'd say, hey, you want to make $25 or $15 or whatever it was adjusted for inflation back then. Um, and then you'd get people to come in and play a game and give you their opinion. And it just so happened you'd be on the other side of a one-way mirror uh, watching. The control scheme received a mixed reaction during playtesting. Some players adapted quickly, while others found it frustrating. Initially, Davis was worried players would not adjust to the different controls. Some players would unintentionally jump off the pyramid several times, reaching a game over in about 10 seconds. Players, however, became accustomed to the controls after playing several rounds of the game. 
The different responses to the controls prompted Davis to reduce the game's level of difficulty, a decision that he would later regret. Um, I mean, generally accurate, although, you know, like, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> the end of that paragraph definitely makes it seem a lot more dramatic. Than I think it was. that was more my reading of it. I think it could have been like a decision <laughs> which he would later regret. A decision he been- <laughs> would later regret. <laughs> um, no, it wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, I had been making the game easier all through its development. People were coming to me in the office when we were just doing play testing in the office amongst Gottlieb employees. People would say, it's too fast, it's too hard, but slow it down. I continued to do that. And I would say that it had nothing to do with the controls. That's another sort of, again, a little weird, a weird, just again, falsehood. I didn't reduce the game's level of difficulty because of the controls. I reduced the level of difficulty because it generally seemed too hard for people. It really wasn't tied to the controls at all. So that's a weird, again, a weird sentence. As far as regretting, uh, you know, again, yes, I do think I made it maybe a little too easy. And that prompted me to create faster, harder, more challenging Qbert after the original was released. That is true. Release. Qbert is Gottlieb's fourth video game. A copyright claim registered with the United States Copyright Office by Gottlieb on February 10th, 1983, cites the date of publication of Qbert as October 18th, 1982. Video Games reported that the game was sold directly to arcade operators at its public showing at the AMOA show held November 18th through the 20th, 1982. Gottlieb offered the machines for $2,600 per unit. Cashbox magazine listed the mass market U.S. release date as December 1982. The game was distributed in Japan by Konami and Sega in March 1983. It was also released in Europe in March 1983. What was it like to have such a giant hit? Uh, It was uh, really unbelievable. It's hard to describe. Um, I obviously was aware that the game was successful. Uh-huh. But I was also completely anonymous. No, nobody knew who I was. You know, that I was not in any way associated with the game or given any credit for the game. So, uh, nor was Jeff, nor Dave. So, uh, it, it was a it was a weird thing. Like I could be in an arcade and watch people play it. I wouldn't go up to people and go, "Hey, that's my game. I made that game." You, you know, didn't. I would have at least a couple of times. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let, let's put it this way: it, even if it occurred to me. It also occurred to me like anybody could say that. Like I, I have literally no proof or any way of proving that my claim is true. You know, recognition is is a nice thing. It's a wonderful thing to be recognized for what you've done. I, I mean, with the you know the retro gaming resurgence of the, the the people's love for their childhood games, I have now been the recipient of a lot of recognition, and it's just wonderful to to see and to know that you've made a difference in people's lives that you've created something that people have enjoyed. I I, honestly, that's the biggest reward for me was not uh, uh, any money, which I did not make from Qbert or uh, fame, which I did not get from Qbert. But the biggest reward for me was just knowing that people appreciated this thing that I had made. Um, It's a very, very good feeling. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling in your life, but it's, it's a very, very wonderful and satisfying feeling. This has been the Wikipedia page for Qbert, part two of two. 
Thanks for listening to Wikilisten. You can find us at wikilisten.com and on all social media and on TikTok at Wikilisten, except for Twitter, which is at wiki underscore listen. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button for your gratitude for having Warren Davis on. <laughs> well, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. And hey, maybe somebody can get my Cuber, not my Cuber, my personal page reinstated. It might be possible. Wiki listeners, do it. Please, somebody, anybody. If there's a particular page you'd like us to read, please let us know. We'll read it. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.